Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, the podcast of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme that is brought to you from the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. My name is Marlene Schäfers and I am a British Academy Newton International Fellow at the Faculty. Today's episode is the first in a series of episodes on the politics of martyrdom, in which we will consider how religious and spiritual ideas about self-sacrifice animate contemporary social movements, political ideas and moral imaginaries. And to begin our exploration, I am joined today by the social anthropologist Dr. Victoria Fomina. I completed my PhD at Central European University in Budapest in 2019, and I'm currently a postdoc in the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto. My research is largely focused on the anthropology of religion and nationalism, Russian and Greek Orthodox Christianity, cults of heroes and martyrs, and moral conservatism. And I'm currently working on a book manuscript that will explore the development of post-Soviet Russian military patriotic culture through the prism of a martyr and hero commemoration. We discuss the astonishing appetite for what are sometimes called new martyr cults in contemporary Russia on the one hand and Cyprus on the other, and the historical and social experiences that drive them. And ultimately the idea that the figure of martyr represents, which I think resonates so well with both publics, is the idea of self-sacrifice that they see as somehow lacking in everyday life within the modern nation-state. And I think it is a desire for some form of purity. It's kind of a meta-narrative where the ideal of having ideals in itself becomes a value. Thank you so much, Victoria, to come onto the podcast. It's really great to have you here. And your work very much speaks to some of the core questions that we're trying to explore in this mini-series of podcast episodes where we're looking at the way in which a religious concept like martyrdom moves and travels into realms of politics, morality, social struggle, and so on. So to introduce our listener to your work I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the way in which you chose your case studies and give us a little bit of a feel of the kind of ethnographic material that you're working with and um, the sites where you conducted your research. Uh, my research into New Matter Code started with following the story of Evgeny Rodionov, a 19 years old bodyguard who was captured and beheaded in Chechnya in 1996 allegedly for his refusal to take off his cross and convert to Islam. Shortly after Rodionov was taken captive alongside with three other soldiers, all the four young men were declared deserters by their military commanders who were trying to avoid assuming any responsibility for their lives, and the truth about the circumstances of Rodionov's death became known to the, due to the efforts of his mother, Lyubov Rodionova, who refused to believe that her son was a deserter and who personally went to Chechnya to uncover his fate, where she eventually was able to meet with her son's executioner and ransom his body from him. And once the story of Rodionov's death became publicly known, it received a very powerful response from the Russian society, with many embracing him as a hero and some nationalists and orthodox believers going as far as demanding his official canonization as a martyr, 
And even though the church refused to canonize a soldier, the popular veneration of him persists, not just in Russia, but also in the broader Orthodox world, with many believers painting icons of him, praying to him, and visiting his grave for a pilgrimage. To me, as a researcher, the inquiry into this developing cult presented an opportunity to not only look into the processes of saint-making as they unfold in real life on the ground, but also to ask uh, a broader question about contemporary Russian society by trying to understand what does the powerful public response to this soldier's story might tell us about the changing moral and political imaginaries, as well as concerns preoccupying uh, the post-Soviet Russian public. I believe that his story resonated so powerfully with the society was because it somehow reflected the tragedy of the last Soviet generation that was raised around the ideals of selflessness, responsibility, self-sacrifice, and which did not find much place or couldn't adjust to the changes happening since the democratic transition and remained faithful to these ideas and tried to fulfill their patriotic duty as they imagined it when no one else around them didn't seem to care about it any longer and when the state was basically disintegrating. But on top of it, there are, of course, a number of other factors that made Rodionov's story more relatable and more moving to the public. His young age, his humble background as a common Russian boy from a small town, and, of course, the figure of his mother, a very stoic and brave woman who became to many a symbol of motherly love. As I was researching Rodionov's cult in Russia, I became aware that he is also venerated outside of Russia and not just in the post-Soviet space, but also in Greece, in Cyprus, in Serbia. And I got quite curious about this phenomenon of transnational martyr veneration. And I was curious to follow Rodionov's story to the context where the audience and the people don't know as much about Russian politics or Russian social concerns to ask what do they make of this story, why does it resonate and what it represents. However, once I got to Cyprus, I very quickly became aware that I cannot understand the context of Rodionov's veneration there without attending to the local martyrical tradition and to the local representations of heroes and martyrs. And this is when I became aware about the growing commemoration of Anastasia, Sisak and Solomon Salomu two young Greek Cypriot men who were participants of the 1996 rally protesting the Turkish occupation of northern Cyprus, which resulted in violent clashes between Greek and Turkish Cypriot protesters in the UN-controlled buffer zone. Anastasia Sisak, a 25-year-old Greek Cypriot refugee from Famagusta, was beaten to death by a group of Turkish Cypriot counter-demonstrators, while three days later his cousin, Salomos Salomo, was gunned down at a Turkish outpost for trying to remove the Turkish flag in sign of protest. Although there are no allusions to sainthood in Isaac and Salomo's case, the two young men are often referred to in Cyprus as martyrs, and I quickly saw quite a lot of similarities with Rodionov's case in their commemoration, not least because all of these figures seem to represent an ultimate commitment to ideals that many in the society seem to regard as a lost cause. And I decided to track these two cults that coincidentally started in the same year, in 1996, in parallel to uncover how different traditional cultural repertoires, as well as political contexts, shape the discourse of martyrdom and memory in different societies. 
I think this comparative perspective that you open up is really valuable in the sense that it allows us, as you say, to go beyond a kind of understanding of this instrumental politics where martyrs or saints appear as an outgrowth of a local instrumental political agenda. And here you can really trace broader tendencies in this martyrdom veneration. So I think that comparative approach seems really valuable to look at what are the common factors that motivate this appetite for martyrdom that you see in these cases. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit then about what you see as the driving factors for this appetite for martyrdom. You mentioned a little bit the fact that there are lost causes and that there are certain moral values and ideas that seem to be important to people and that martyrdom in both cases kind of picks up on. Really is an interesting question, and I don't think there is one simple answer about the causes of the appetite for martyrdom. Part of it is culturally shaped, because Russia and Cyprus both have a very long tradition of honoring national heroes and martyrs, and of course these are both orthodox countries that have an institutionalized tradition of martyr veneration. And ultimately the ideal that the figure of martyr represents, which I think resonates so well with both publics, is the idea of self-sacrifice that they see as somehow lacking in everyday life within the modern nation-state. And I think it is a desire for some form of purity, because in many societies there is this dichotomy about spiritual as opposed to material values, or moral as opposed to material values, and there is this idea that morality always transcends the individual and immediate material needs. So it creates the idea where to live a moral life or to be a truly moral person means to be above one's own individual materialistic interests and to be able to sacrifice them in the name of something bigger, something greater. And there is a lot of popular desire for the society as a collective to have this higher purpose. And I think on the level of individuals, it's quite often that people who become the promoters or participants of these scouts and who advocate so strongly for memory and get involved in memorial initiatives, other people who often are middle class, people with some intellectual leanings, they're interested in reading, and they are definitely part of this culture, which can be called to some extent highbrow intellectual culture of thinking about spirituality, thinking about morality, actively, consciously, and being reflective about it. And of course, when they think about their own lives, they need a sense of purpose that is beyond merely making a career, making sure you have a comfortable house, a good income, and some kind of safe and comfortable life. There is the idea of being able to do something for other people, or if not for other people, for God or for some other higher purpose. And I think that's precisely what driving it, the fact that people seem to feel like this dimension is not strongly articulated or collectively represented in public culture. And they want to create their own public culture that would be centered around these ideals and where the value of self-sacrifice and heroism would be acknowledged and equally praised by the entire society. And then how does this play out concretely in what kind of public cultures are created around these martyrs. Maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of a picture of, you know, what are the forms of commemoration or veneration? Uh, what kind of people are involved in it? And so what kind of shapes and forms does this martyrdom veneration take? 
in Russia very interestingly um, where there is now still a powerful ongoing orthodox revival a lot of forms of how that public culture is created draw not only on the pre-revolutionary orthodox tradition and you know the traditional idea of pilgrimages feasts organized for the martyr or the carrying around of relics to different cities where the crowd of believers would come and venerate them, but also on the very distinctly Soviet cultural forums, which are, for instance, special events known as lessons of courage that are held in institutional organizations and education, mostly for high school students, but sometimes for university students as well, where a teacher or a guest is invited and they talk to the students and the audience about a heroic feat of a specific figure. That's one example of the more Soviet cultural forms. And there is quite a lot of mixture as well. Another prominent Soviet tradition was that culture of amateur concerts when activists, students, or sometimes artistic collectives around the factory organize a concert where they would often sing patriotic songs or remember the stories of heroes of the World War II or the Civil War. And now what we can see in Russia is orthodox element being added to this cultural forum. And there are quite a lot of patriotic concerts that are organized by orthodox collectives or organized by the church and on the church premises. And Rodionov's story was a very convenient instance to do that because he is honored both as a hero and as a saint. In Cyprus, that culture is somewhat different, and I think it's very strongly grounded in the Greek Cypriot tradition of protests and commemorative events that developed after the 1974 Turkish invasion. They also had a very strong tradition when high school students, university students, and the general public would come on certain dates to commemorate the invasion or to commemorate specific heroes and dates of their deaths. That public culture somewhat declined in the 2000s following Cyprus' ascension to the European Union. And now the people who are trying to recreate it are individual enthusiasts who grew up with that, who were high school students back then, and who remember this warmth and nostalgia, this sense of unity, of being there together, participating, showing one's commitment to the national cause, showing one's commitment to memory of the heroes. And now they try to do it as a more grassroots initiative. And one example is the Bikers Initiative in memory of Isaac and Salomu, where quite a lot of young men would ride the bikes because the initial procession during which Isaac and Salomu died was an anti-occupational biker rally. So they now try to reinvent this rally and also pass across the same location in memory of Isaac and Salomu. And they would also often organize a memorial concert at the end of that, where someone would narrate to the public uh, the circumstances of the two heroes' deaths, say something about their lives, sometimes invite the family members to testify about the character and the ideals of this young man, and then sing patriotic songs. There is definitely some overlap between the two traditions, and orthodox element is, of course, also present in Cyprus, even though these are explicitly secular events, but they sometimes would also coincide with a memorial. As you were just explaining the way in which the different national contexts generate different repertoires of commemoration. I was wondering to what extent the fact that in both cases we're dealing with young men who are involved in sort of defending a national cause, and both are either official wars or, you know, a military invasion. I was wondering how you see these 
cults of martyrdom playing into a specific gendered vision of the nation and how that ties into certain understandings of nationalism and militarism? These are certainly highly gendered cults. It's about the young man who is in one fashion or another represented as a defender of the motherland. And they're meant to present an example for other young men. One important aspect of these cults that they are also pedagogical tools was their lives are offered to, to the public as examples. And that in itself reflects something because clearly there is a kind of popular idea that it's the young man who needs these examples and who, first of all, need to be able to cultivate within themselves the value of bravery, loyalty, preparedness to sacrifice one, one's life for the nation. And in both societies, that goes hand in hand with the crisis of military culture. In Russia, it's quite distinct. It goes together with the devaluation of the military profession that happened in the 1990s, and also very stereotypical negative images of the Russian soldiers that widely circulated in the media back then, since the Chechen war was very heavily covered by the press, and often the press was extremely critical of the atrocities perpetrated by the Russian soldiers in Chechnya. So there was a very common perceptional image of a Russian soldier as this drunken, violent person who has no ideals or beliefs and who becomes just this violent force of nature. And for many patriotically oriented Russians, the story of Evgeny Rodionov was a way to, to give a counterexample to that narrative, to show, look, this is a wonderful young man who was good, who was kind, who never did anything bad in his life. And on top of that, he had a kind of moral and spiritual strength that most of us do not have today. He chose to die as opposed to betray his country, betray his comrades or betray his faith. And that's a very admirable ideal of being loyal to one's ideals and having explicitly moral ideals in the first place. I think that narrative was really, really important in Russia in the 1990s, where there was a common perception that idealism in any form was ridiculed. There was a kind of pervasive cynicism and the idea that people who talk about these big things, patriotism, nation or even God, they are somehow stupid. They just don't know how to fit in the society and become useful members of society by building careers or doing something. And that's why they dream of these high purposes. It's kind of a meta-narrative where the ideal of having ideals in itself becomes a value. And it doesn't even matter what the ideal was, if it was just about truly being an orthodox person, or if it was about simply having some self-respect and dignity and refusing to do what your captors are demanding from you. Any form of ideals was really appreciated by the society because there was a moral panic about the youth and the idea that the youth today is utterly nihilistic and cynical and has no ideals whatsoever and would sell out the nation or anything as long as they offered a material incentive. In Cyprus, it's slightly different scenario, but definitely there is also a perceived crisis of commitment to maintaining the military and commitment to the national cause, which happened partially due to the fact that since Cyprus' uh, accession to the European Union, there was a kind of sense of ontological security and the idea that full-blown military conflict or invasion is no longer possible because Cyprus is an EU nation that is protected by NATO allies and by other European powers. 
And that has led to curtailment of funding to the military in Cyprus and also to the curtailment of commitment to the discourse of memory and national cause that was very strong previously during the past decades and that reflected the pragmatics of the situation where it was clear for many people that armed struggle against the Turkish occupation is impossible, Turkey will not withdraw, and for many reasons, Greek-Cypriot nationalism is kind of caught in this contradiction, where on the one hand there is a value of memory and commitment to national struggle that is taught to children at a very young age, and they are all supposed to say, I will always remember the occupied territories, I will always struggle in however way I can to protect and to liberate the occupied territories. And at the same time, there is a everyday reality where no one is struggling because the struggle is impossible, and where with many people having achieved quite a decent standard of life, there is also this idea that somehow comfortable level of life and comfortable consumptive lifestyle is destroying the national consciousness because people have so much more to lose now and they are so less willing to commit to the costly and potentially deadly struggle against the occupation because on some level they are okay with what they have and they can imagine living on with that. So in both cases there is there are segments of the society that are concerned with the lack of commitment to patriotism, military defense, and who therefore promote these figures as a way to educate the younger generation, to fight what they see as individualism and materialism among the younger generations and teach them the right values, which is the value of sacrifice, patriotism and resistance if necessary. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting in that here then the martyrdom becomes really more of a pedagogical and a moral project, which is, I think, also something that you underline in your work. And one thing that, as you were talking, I was wondering about whether you could expand a little bit more, is that you, you've you talked both about martyrdom now and about heroism or like heroes as exemplary figures of moral conduct. And I was wondering how you see the difference between heroes and martyrs, whether there is a difference, and the fact that what we're talking about in these two cases is specifically not just, quote-unquote, the veneration of heroes, but it's a veneration of martyrs that's taking place. So what kind of a difference does that make? That was indeed a very central and very important question to my work, largely because I was quite uncomfortable with the notion of political martyrdom that is quite common in the literature on martyrdom, that always based, in my opinion, in a kind of artificial distinction because it implies that there is a somehow pure and authentic religious martyrdom that is real. And there is also political martyrdom when certain figures are adopted for specific political purposes and promoted. And of course, if one adopts this perspective, it implies that once a genuinely religious figure was adopted by political purposes, it's no longer a religious cult, it's now a secular political cult. And perhaps the other way around, once we remove the politics, then it becomes religion. But absolutely any cultural aspect can be adopted for political purposes. And it does not mean that this phenomenon can entirely be reduced then to to its political dimension. So when I was looking at the distinction between heroes and martyrs, I wanted to get into something deeper and look at the differences 
between how people think about how martyrs should be remembered as opposed to how heroes should be remembered. And Evgeny Rodionov's case was a perfect case study to look into that precisely because there is so much ambivalence. He is uncanonized saint that for some people is a martyr, whereas for other people who are not religious at all, he is just a national hero, and they don't necessarily even like the whole discourse of sainthood or martyrdom. And the distinction I ultimately draw is what I call different traditions of commemoration. And I do believe that there is a difference between the Christian, very broadly put, tradition of saints' veneration and martyrs' veneration, and the tradition of hero commemoration that unfolds in the secular nation-states. And that difference is predicated on how two traditions construct the notion of sacrifice and the meaning of life and death. In the secular tradition, sacrifice is understood as a costly and kind of instrumental act that a person does in order to achieve some change in the world. It's very unfortunate, but it's also glorified because sometimes it's necessary for the soldier in a battlefield to sacrifice his life in order to secure the existence and the survival of his state or his nation or his moral collective. And at the same time, the discourse, of course, presupposes that life is the most valuable thing one has, and this is why the sacrifice is valued so much, and it comes with the idea that once a person dies, his life is over. It ends. So the only way to vindicate this huge sacrifice that someone did would be to either secure the success of his or her cause, if a hero dies for me in some military conflict, it means that I now should continue his struggle. Otherwise, his sacrifice is meaningless, it's in vain, it's unredeemed. And it also comes with a discourse of duty to remember. There is the idea that society on whose behalf the sacrifice was carried out has a moral duty to be eternally grateful, to honor and to remember their heroes. There is a saying that I think exists in quite a lot of languages, and it goes, the soldier dies not when he is being killed, but when he is forgotten. And I think it very nicely summarizes precisely that logic of eternal duty to remember that becomes a very powerful obligation that the collective should keep fulfilling. At the same time, the idea of commemoration of veneration of martyrs and saints within the Christian tradition is rather different because life and death and the meaning of sacrifice are sort of in different terms. A martyr doesn't die for the nation, he or she dies for God. And there is the idea that his or her sacrifice bears a transformative character. It is, in a sense, self-purposeful because through voluntarily accepting suffering and a violent death, a person achieves the highest point of his or her spiritual development. By virtue of committing this act, they move closer to God and they transform themselves from a human agent to a divine one, they achieve sainthood. And in that regard, the sacrifice is vindicated immediately because it's vindicated by God and the highest reward one can have to be closer to God and to be a saint is already given. And from that perspective, it's not just there is no real obligation on behalf of the Orthodox believers, for instance, to remember and venerate all the martyrs that existed within the church, but there is this idea that martyrs do not need it either. They don't need regular believers to pray for them because they are already in heaven. But what happens is that believers pray to them they believe that with death, a martyr begins a new life and a new form of existence. 
And it's not that the martyrs need the believers, the believers need them, and they come to them to ask for help, to ask for things, to ask for advice, and then they turn to their histories and their vitas, hoping to learn how to be a proper Orthodox person, how to achieve what the martyr or saint was able to achieve. I would say that these are very different logics. And for me, it's a bit ideotypical. And in reality, of course, all of this is quite mixed and it shifts. So it's not an ultimate characterization of one or the other process. It's just signaling as a conceptual tool for me that these logics exist. And in Rodionov's case, they also quite interestingly get conflicted on the ground with actors who switch between the two logics and two perspectives occasionally, being aware of it and being aware of the conflict. And that, I thought, was quite a powerful phenomenon. One easy example I can give is during the pilgrimage and the feast that occurs on the day of Rodionov's death by his grave in the village of Satinoruskaya in the outskirts of Moscow, quite often the priests come to serve a memorial service. And very often these priests who come, they do believe Rodionov is a saint and a martyr, but they cannot go against the church, which means that they cannot pray to Rodionov. And all they can do is to deliver the, what is called in Russian, panichida, memorial service for the dead, in the course of which believers pray to God for the soul of the deceased person. And more than one time I could observe that after finishing such a service, a priest himself would comment on the conflict here, saying that even though I just delivered the memorial service here, I would like to point out that Rodionov is a saint and he does not need our prayers. We don't need to pray to God for him. In fact, we should be praying to him so that he intercedes for us before God. One thing that I was wondering as you were talking is whether you think that there is a way in which nationalism or the nation might also be drawn in this more religious sphere then if the saint or the quote-unquote religious ideal type of martyrdom, if that is about achieving this transcendent state where you don't actually need people to remember you, but you, by virtue of being a martyr, you have already achieved a different kind of ontological existence and you come closer to God, let's say. If that occurs within a nationalist discourse, does that also do something to the nation then? I mean, does that sort of sanctify the nation as, you know, some sort of transcendent thing that people can die for from a political theology perspective does it do something to nationalism i'm not sure how i feel about saying that nationalism gets drawn into this because again nationalism has always been there from the start especially in the context of russia and cyprus where there is such a strong identification drawn between ethnic identity and religious identity and there is so much talk about a true Greek being orthodox, a true Russian being orthodox. So that is something that has always been present. But, and by, by glorifying particularly the figures of saints and martyrs, there is a way to allude to the fact that every person in our society or every Russian has a potential to be that because there is something inside them, like a capacity for heroism is inside them or the capacity to achieve sainthood is inside them. And likewise, that can happen in, in other societies. At the same time, heroic discourses do that equally well. I don't think there was any lack of the discourse of heroism in the Soviet Union. And they did not seem to need this bigger transcendence when we speak about God or other world or life after death. 
For them, the level of transcendence they have with the idea of national heroes who sacrifice for the ideology, for the communist ideals, for their brothers and sisters, that was enough to have a fully meaningful framework for, for thinking about everyday life and morality in that society. So I don't think we should speak of religious discourses as distinctly unique in that context, because there are multiple other ways to achieve the same effect. Even though within the anti-liberal discourses, there is always this kind of stereotypical and not always fair portrayal of secular liberal ideology as very narrowly individualistic. And what they imagine by that is that, I guess for them, ideal typical secular liberal subject would articulate themselves in terms of all I want in life is to be successful, to be loved, to be happy, to have a lot of nice food and nice clothes and all these things. But in reality, of course, that does not exist because even the secular liberal framework has its own forms of transcendence and it also encourages people to think about their lives and to articulate and to value preparedness to be selfless, to help others, to do something meaningful for others, not just for yourself. So I think there is quite a lot of demand globally in many societies for greater debate about it and for explicit articulation of these ideals. And to some extent, there is a failure of the secular liberal framework, perhaps to, to make this ideal publicly reiterated enough. There is a lack of somehow rituals and collective events that would make it clear to, to everyone in the society. So in a way, I feel like what you're saying sort of speaks back to this long discussion that we've had in the social sciences about modernity, secular modernity being an experience of disenchantment, right? And so that leads to a whole lot of searches for a, a re-enchantment or different forms of enchantment, and that can take a variety of different forms. So would you say that this falls into into that kind of thinking about dis modernity as disenchantment and then the different ways of people trying to re-enchant the modern world? It certainly does. I think that's that's also one way to, to articulate it. And I think when it comes to modernity, one of the interesting ideals that is put forth by it is the idea of somehow rationality and moderation which inevitably does bring us back to kind of material values because rationality is about strategy. Moderation is about making sure that you are using the resources reasonably. And the idea of martyrdom is a very juxtaposition to that. It is regarded as irrational. It is regarded as a very radical denial of any assumption of rationalism within narrow material terms. It's preparedness to die for something bigger And this is why it resonates so powerfully, especially with young people, I think, because young people tend to be more radical. They tend to be more interested in, in being maximalist and pursuing any form of ideal to its logical conclusion. I think I, I borrow this idea from Scott Etran, an anthropologist who studies uh, jihadi movements and radicalization of Islamic youth, and who has previously also articulated it quite powerfully, that when we think about this phenomenon or how we can counteract it, very often in, in Western societies there is this idea of promoting moderate Islam. And he pointed out quite brilliantly, I think, that what kind of young people want to be moderate? They want to do something very dramatic and glorifying. And I think there is a lot of truth in that. 
it's something that goes way beyond this case. It goes to different political ideologies across the globe among young people. Many of them want to reject moderation, especially because most societies are so hero-centered. Think about the popular Hollywood culture, all the comics, all the heroes. It's quite understandable why young individuals would harbor these ideals. At the same time, it doesn't mean that these ideals directly lead to violence or radicalization. After all, most of the time, most people don't try to imitate martyrdom because it's not for everyone. Not everyone is prepared to die, but they do want this ideal to be publicly acknowledged and then later they translate it in their lives in smaller and ironically more moderate goals when they think that one way for me as a person, if I'm not prepared to be the soldier and die at war, one way for me to be moral is to remember, to, to do my part in the organization of these initiatives and making sure the memory is preserved. But in Russia, I also encountered quite a lot of young men who, who do venerate Rodionov and who use his story as an occasion to ask themselves, what would I do in his place? And they are quite honest in their responses. They, they would acknowledge that they are not sure that they would make the same choice. Because it's impossible to demand such a choice from anyone. It's an unthinkable choice for most average people. So in a sense, in most societies, as a moral model, martyrdom works through emulation, not imitation. Because direct imitation, unless we talk about extreme circumstances where there is an invasion and the only way to, to contribute somehow is to embark on a suicidal mission, in most cases, this ideal does not lead to radicalization. It just merely acknowledges and signals some transcendence and the desire for some higher purpose. So because you were just talking about the way in which this ties into certain politics of youth um, and the way in which people seek to promote a certain kind of moral stance in everyday life, how do you see um, these cults of martyrdom as tied into a global rise of, let's say, authoritarian, neo-authoritarian, anti-liberal, quite militaristic politics that we've seen in the recent years in which a lot has been written and said about. And people have been trying to make different analyses of what might be the reason for the rise of these new authoritarian leaders um, that are often rooted in quite militaristic, quite gendered politics. So... How does your research contribute to that broader sphere of analysis of these new forms of authoritarian politics? I approach it by looking not so much at the dimension of authoritarianism or any forms of practices that come top-down from, from the state, but I look at the grassroots politics and the question I pose to myself is limited to why does this appeal to people? or why some people engage in grassroots activism, trying to establish their own paramilitary formations or military patriotic clubs. It takes all kinds of different forms. And I coined this notion that I think is helpful for thinking about it, which I call moral conservatism. Simply going with the term conservatism is not helpful because it means so many things in different contexts. But what I mean by moral conservatism, very simply that This is a discourse and form of practices that are rooted in the concern for morality. They all take on anti-liberal form precisely because they believe that 
their societies are dominated by secular liberal ideals, which are all about individualism, materialism, and lack of transcendence, and they attempt to build their own counterculture to it, which often takes a conservative term in so far as it references some imagined glorious past, it references traditional values, traditional gender norms, traditional ideas of collective and the nation, because that allows for some form of transcendence. And they are often also quite unhappy with the popular culture and the culture of the youth in TV, magazines and social media. And they want to somehow take control over that culture or introduce different narratives into this culture. So that that conversation definitely connects to the discussion of re-enchantment and it has quite a lot of causes, but beyond the narrow national context, because of course there are specific national grievances and economic grievances and political grievances as well, we, we cannot deny that it's absolutely a very transnational phenomenon that takes a very similar shape, despite the fact that the exact discourse is transpired by local cultural forms. And in that regard, we, we could think about it as a global rebellion against modernity. It is a rebellion against a form of everyday life that is seen as, I would say, lacking passion, that is seen as routinized and boring and somehow unexcited. And that's precisely why it connects so well to militarism, because insofar as we are talking about young men, militarism is exciting. And whereas for external observers, especially liberal observers, they often think of it as the desire for violence. For people on the inside who are part of it, it's not necessarily that. Or they wouldn't think of themselves in these terms. They don't do it because they want to commit violence. Otherwise, they could join a violent gang. They think of that as sacrifice, as a form of becoming the hero. And of course, it's a very gendered form of hero of a strong man who is fighting until the end and is prepared to die tragically, straining themselves, not just physically, but also morally and spiritually to be prepared to do the final choice, the kind of choice heroes and martyrs were doing. And in that regard, it's a very powerful fantasy. And it is a fantasy of heroism, and it is a fantasy also of friendship and camaraderie and solidarity, of having a tightly knit society united by a concrete goal within which individual sacrifices would be meaningful and would be acknowledged and recognized. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Religion and Global Challenges about the rise of new martyr cults in the Christian Orthodox world and how these articulate with the rise of nationalist politics, an admiration of militarist values, and the appeal of moral conservatism. We will continue our exploration of contemporary politics of martyrdom in the coming episodes, so do tune in and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find additional material about this episode and more information about previous episodes on our website at interfaith.cam.ac.uk.